You're listening to EE Times on air, and this is EE Times Current. I'm Eric Singer. Welcome to Brains and Machines, a deep dive into neuromorphic engineering and biologically inspired technology. In this episode, EE Times regular Dr. Sonny Baines talks to Professor Mitra Hartman from Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, about the synergy between engineering and biology, the interest behind modeling rat whiskers, and why it's so productive to be part of the neuromorphic community. But first, today's EE Times current highlights. ARM begins second term on NASDAQ at $54.5 billion valuation. In an interview with EE Times, ARM exec Paul Williamson discusses the company's opening bell on NASDAQ as it began its second spell on the stock exchange, securing a valuation of $54.5 billion. Driving Europe's Chip Renaissance, TSMC's vision with ESMC. TSMC's Nina Kao said the joint venture between TSMC and its European partners Bosch, Infineon, and NXP is set to be a game-changer in semiconductor manufacturing. Industry 4.0 is smarter when data is in context. In this video interview with EE Times, Critical Manufacturing CEO Francisco Almada Lobo talks about the need to overcome the issue of dark data in manufacturing operations. Now, back to Brains and Machines. Your hosts are Dr. Sonny Baines of University College London and Dr. Giulia D'Angelo of the Italian Institute of Technology. Welcome to Brains and Machines. I am Giulia D'Angelo. And I'm Sonny Baines. In today's episode, Sonny will talk about the interplay between physics and biology with Professor Mita Hartmann from Northwestern University. After the interview, we will be talking to Ralph Etienne Kamix from Johns Hopkins University about the issues they raise. Thanks, Julia. Mitra is a professor of both biomedical and biomechanical engineering and has moved between physics, engineering, and biology throughout her career. Most recently, her team completed a simulation of rat whisking and behavior that can be used to test hypotheses about the animal and the neural structures that drive it. There are links to her work and some of the specific papers we'll be discussing on our website. You can check them out at brainsandmachines.net. I met up with Mitra at the Capocaccia workshop towards neuromorphic intelligence in Sardinia, Italy. Mitra Hartman, Welcome to Brains and Machines. Let's start with your technical background. What did you study? I studied applied and engineering physics. And when I graduated, neural networks were becoming really interesting and important. A lot of people were excited about them. And so I thought, hey, let's would be interesting to apply this physics background to real biological systems. So I applied to graduate school biology programs all over the country. And the place that excited me the most was Caltech, in part because their biology program was very closely associated with a newly formed department called Computational Neuroscience, the CNS department. And so I knew that if I went there, I'd have a nice integrated experience doing both biology and computation. And so how did that progress when you were at Caltech? How did you get into the modeling of biology and what sort of systems were you interested in at that time? Although I was in the biology program, I took lots of classes in the computational neuroscience department. 
And I was friends with a lot of people in the CNS department. And we took classes together. We'd have journal clubs together. We communicated a lot. And I was there at the time that all of this neuromorphic engineering was being developed, right? When Carver, Mead, and Misha were developing this new technology. And I thought that was really exciting. And then when I finished my PhD, I realized that I was interested in the opposite of what I had done going from undergraduate to graduate school. Before, I took my physics background and tried to apply that to neuroscience. And now I want to take the biology and neuroscience that I've learned at Caltech and start applying that to engineering systems. And that's really what led me right around the time that I finished my PhD and was graduating and was getting ready to take a postdoc. That's what led me back into the neuromorphic community. So what did you actually do for your PhD while you were at Caltech? So for my PhD work, I studied a structure called the cerebellum, which everyone agrees is involved in sensory motor control. So it helps the animal integrate sensory and motor signals. And the particular part of the cerebellum that I recorded from was uh, responsive to whiskers, the whiskers of the rat. So during my thesis, we learned some interesting things about how the neurons of the cerebellum may be combining sensory and motor information. But what I learned from spending a lot of time watching rats is that I didn't understand their mechanics very well, the mechanics of the whiskers very well. And at that time, we didn't have the tools, the high-speed video cameras that we needed to capture the motion of the whiskers because rats are moving their whiskers back and forth at very high frequencies. Hi, listeners. I'm going to interject here because after we listened back to the interview, Mitra and I realized that there was a key idea that didn't quite come through the way we'd like. It concerns the main subject of this interview, which is whisking, the thing that Mitra just mentioned. So just to be absolutely clear, let me take a stab at it now. Whisking is a behavior exhibited by many rodents. They rapidly move their whiskers back and forth about five to 25 times a second, brushing them against the ground and against objects. It's a kind of active sensing where the animal actively probes the environment to get information about it. In general, active sensing can be done using some kind of emission, like a bat's cry for echolocation or the electric field created by an eel, or it can be done using part of the animal's own body, like a hand or tongue. Whiskers are a particularly interesting case, however. Even though they're a physical, tactile probe, they do not themselves have any sensors along their length the way most other body parts do. All their sensors are at the base, like a hair. Okay, back to the interview. So when I went into my postdoc, I was interested in really quantifying what these whiskers might be doing. So I took a postdoc in the Bio-Inspired Technology and Systems Program at JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where they wanted to understand how we might take biological ideas and apply them to engineering. What was the specific work you were doing there? We were looking at whether the kinds of information conveyed by whiskers might be useful for some future missions. So we were working at a very low technology readiness level. So you're imagining that they would be put onto some kind of robot, some kind of uh, pathfinder type thing, and that would give the robots extra information by which they could survive Mars or the moon or wherever yes, they're and, going to and, be. And NASA does also does a lot of missions that aren't necessarily as, as dramatic as going to Mars. So some sort of r robot that could be useful for NASA. 
So you've spent the last few years modeling how the rat uses its whiskers to see the world. Can you tell me what you found interesting about that particular system? Yeah, so it might seem a little unusual to study rat whiskers, but actually there are a lot of labs that study rodent whiskers all over the world. And there are a couple of reasons why it's an important model system. There are both neurobiological reasons and engineering reasons. From the neurobiological point of view, the reason rat whiskers are particularly a useful system to study is both the number of neurons that are devoted to the whisker system, as well as the arrangement of neurons. In all animals, the brain expands to overrepresent the sensory systems that are particularly important to the animal. Can you talk a little bit more about the whiskers and how they're used by the rat? Yes, yes. In, for example, the human, the visual system is really important. So we have a large visual representation. And in the cat, also visual system, but in the rodents, the senses that are very important to them are olfaction, so the sense of smell, as well as the sense of touch through the whiskers. And so their brains have expanded to over-represent whisker information, tactile information coming in through the whiskers. So that's the number of neurons part. And then the arrangement of neurons mimics the arrangement of whiskers on the rat's face. So if you pick up a rat and you look at it, the how the whiskers are arranged, you'll see that they're very regular in rows and columns. So we can talk about the rows, giving them letters like the A row, B row, C row, and the columns will give them numbers. So one through seven, for example. And so you can talk about, it's, it's a little bit like rat bingo. You can talk about like the C2 whisker or the D3 whisker. You can identify these whiskers from rat to rat. And what's neat about this arrangement is that the neurons in the brain are also arranged in that same row column pattern. So they're mimicking the topography of the face. And what this means is that from a neuroscience point of view, neuroscientists can go in and record from particular regions of the brain that they know are responding to the D3 whisker or the B2 whisker. And that's true at all stages of the brain. So they can look at how information is gradually being processed and transformed from the outside of the rat to the inside of the rat at the highest levels of the brain. So even though the whiskers have this nice property of the rows and columns, as you said, they're actually quite difficult to model because as mechanical beams, they're bending and doing different things. Can you talk about, as a physicist, how difficult that is to model? From a mechanical engineering point of view, they're complicated, but they're not as complicated as other systems that we might choose to study. For example, if you want to study the sense of touch, you might think that you'd study the hand, but the hand has so many degrees of freedom and you can manipulate things and pick things up with your hand. And rats are using their whiskers purely as tactile sensors. So they don't have the ability to manipulate objects with their whiskers and they don't have quite as many degrees of freedom as the hand does. So they're simple from that point of view, from an engineering perspective, but they're also complicated from an engineering perspective in that they're not just rigid rods, they're flexible. So they bend and vibrate. So the whiskers are a useful model system to study from the neurobiological point of view and the engineering point of view. And then if you merge those two together, they're also interesting because whiskers create a closed loop system with the environment. They're closing the loop between sensing and movement through the brain, right? So this, this brain-body loop can encapsulate this idea of embodiment. So the 
rat moves its whiskers with the with its muscles, and the whiskers go out and contact something. So a tactile sense comes back to the rat, and then the brain processes that tactile information, and then the brain sends out a motor signal that commands the muscles to move again. So you have this nice closed loop between muscles, the whisker moving. Contacting an object, getting the sensory data, going into the brain, and then telling the animal how to move again. So it's this sensing action closed loop that's really important that both neurobiologists and engineers are interested in. And so something that I've spent a lot of time doing is thinking about what are the kinds of modeling tools that we could develop that would help us understand that closed loop. Right, and as you say, this kind of analysis is particularly important to roboticists who are trying to build things with sensors and actuators moving quickly through the world. So if you can understand how the rat is managing to do that, engineers can steal from that in order to do their work. So say a bit more about this model and how you went about building it. We've constructed a physics-based simulation of the rat whisker array. And it took us quite a long time to do it because of some of the complexities that you mentioned before. The whiskers are flexible and they bend and vibrate. And it's been through a lot of iterations. And the techniques that we used to try and start building this simulation tool included both early simulations, simple two-dimensional simulations, for example. The simulation we have now is three-dimensional, but we started with two dimensions. But we also built simple hardware models or simple robots to test some of the ideas that we had about how the whiskers would interact with the world. So one of the things that we found was particularly complicated to think about was the way that a whisker would slip on an object. So if you take a flexible object, like a piece of wire, for example, and you brush it against an object like a coffee mug or a vase or something, some object in your house, you'll notice that the point where the whisker makes contact on the object, that point is changing as you brush it along the object, but the point on the whisker or the piece of wire that you're using is also changing, right? So it's not just the contact point on the object, but the contact point on the whisker. And the rat's doing this continuously. And the question is, how does the rat know there are no sensors on the whisker? So how is it knowing, like, where is this contact point on the whisker? How am I, how is my whisker oriented in space such that it's contacting the object in this way? And where is it relative to my own base of the whisker and then relative to my head? So we use these hardware models to try and inform simulations of how the whisker would slip on different objects, trying to think about things like friction, for example. And what was the answer in terms of how it understands where it is? I'm wondering if it has something to do with the frequency of the oscillation of the free end or something like that. We don't think it has to do a whole lot with vibrations. We think the localization problem is best solved through bending of the whisker and looking at how the torques at the base of the whisker are changing as the whisker deflects into the object. So how the whisker is rotating against the object and how the signals at the base are changing as that rotation occurs. So I know you are particularly keen to have scientists and engineers use your model to test their own algorithms and hypotheses. Can you say a little bit about what kind of studies you'd like to use your model and that would be productive? I think it's possible we might be able to use this model as a hypothesis generator for neuroscientists. So we know that from the outside of the animal, the whisker sensors, through to the muscles, where the the muscles are moving the whiskers around, 
the shortest loop is only two to three synapses, only two to three connections between neurons. So the idea would be if we could model networks in between the sensors and the actuators, that we might come up with families of circuit solutions that could solve the problem of how does the rat orient to an object or how does it reflexively retract its whiskers away from a contact pattern or what sorts of circuit connections are important to permit this type of behavior. So it's like we're building a rat from the outside in and we're generating hypotheses as we go for the kinds of circuitry that should exist in the real animal. And we should say that what's interesting about this simulation that you've built is that it's not just of the rat itself, but it's also of the environments that this virtual rat is living in, right? So one of the big problems in neuroscience is that it's very difficult to record from animals when they're exploring their natural environment in a naturalistic way. And one of the things we can do with this simulation is we can put our simulated rat into a 3D simulated environment, like we can go to a, a dumpster, we can you know, make a three-dimensional scan of this dumpster or a garbage dumper alley or something, we can put this virtual rat in this environment and see how its whiskers would be interacting with all of the different objects within that environment. That's something that we'd never be able to do as real biologists, we can't monitor all of those signals coming in on the whiskers, and we certainly couldn't do it if the rat were scurrying about the alleyway. So this is, we have access to all of this mechanical data coming in on the whiskers, and then we're trying to model the neurons and how they would respond to these mechanical signals. That's great. So you also talked before about building this rat metal as a robot so that you could clarify some of the issues that you were struggling with. Do you expect to take that further? Because I know building uh, robot models of biology is a thing. It's, uh, can you talk about what you're hoping to do and also why it's better than doing simulations? Again, we're not able to capture all of the important physical parameters in simulation. It's not a possible thing to do. We're interested now in skin stretch. So the skin between the whiskers is very important and we wanna know how the motions of one whisker might influence the next. And so we're, we're building a soft robot that can start looking at whisker to whisker interactions through the skin and how the skin might move the whiskers that help move, the muscles that are controlling the skin surface might help move the whiskers all as a piece together through the environment. And is that something that you would then go back and build into your simulation? Exactly. Yes, that and the muscles, right? So right now we have the simulation of the whiskers moving, but we would like also to simulate the muscles controlling the whiskers. Okay, so I want to move on and ask you about neuromorphic engineering. So you've been connected to the neuromorphic community, which is more about building brains into silicon than it is understanding the brains in the first place. So it's more about exploiting the biology than understanding the biology. Can you tell us why you think that's an interesting approach, why you still are involved with that community? I think the relationship really goes both ways, right? I mean, it's true that they're borrowing from biology, but we can learn from the kinds of algorithms that they're describing they want to implement on their chips as well. And I really enjoy the close intertwining of thinking about biological implementation and the engineering implementation 
So I know we're, we're recording here at your first Capocaccia, also my first Capocaccia, and I know you've been to Telluride a couple of times. Tell me why that is worth your time. You must be very busy. I really enjoy the way that ideas bounce around in this community between the biology and the engineering implementation and the conceptualization of algorithms. It's really those three things. It's how are you going to put it on a chip? How are you thinking about the computation that's performed and how does it relate to biology? And that triangle of ideas bouncing back and forth between those different areas, I haven't seen it replicated at any other conference. So I think it's a great community. Mitra Hartman, thanks for coming on to Brains and Machines. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sunny. I found this interview very interesting, and especially I loved her strong bio-inspired approach. For more about Mitra's work, please go to brainsandmachines.net. Now, we welcome back our regular commentator, Professor Ralph Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University. Good to be back. This is one that I find very fascinating as well. It also turns out that Mitra and I were all collaborators a long time ago on spinal cord circuitry for locomotion. So I know a lot of what she does, and I'm very pleased to, to see and hear all the good things that she's been doing recently. So I found interesting that actually lots of people working on neuromorphic are actually coming from physics. The physics component is not unusual. So in fact, I was a physics undergraduate as well. I was also a <laughs> physics undergraduate. <laughs> so it's not uncommon to see this. So this is very good. So Ralph, what do you think about the interview? I thought her talk was really interesting because it basically shows that the linkages between sensors, actuators, and then the neuromorphic circuit that sits in between. So one thing that she really caught my attention on was when she was basically saying, look, you have these whiskers that are interrogating the world, tapping the objects in the world. And then there's the action that the mouse takes by moving through the world. And in between those two, there's the brain, right? There's the neural circuit. One of the things that we don't know is what are the circuits that actually sits in between. And what Neuromorphic provides is a mechanism to try out all kinds of different circuits and test which one, almost a Turing test, if you will, for the mouse to see which circuit replicates the action that is seen in the behavior to the closest that you can find. And that is, I think, another beautiful example of application of Neuromorphic engineering. This fast mechanism for trying out all kinds of different circuits, including learning and so on, and then playing it out through the robot or through the model and see what it does. I think before we move on from this, I think this issue of having a lot of physicists involved is actually quite telling. I think that comes from the fact that physicists look at the world in a slightly more complicated way than just bits. I think physicists are able to look into a system that obviously doesn't just work by breaking the world into a data stream. And that's what I see, I think, in Mitra's work. And I know we're going to talk about embodiment later. You really need to have things that are embodied and reacting in the real world in order to see what's really happening, in order to really get friction and all of the other physical forces to play their part and be taken account of by whatever's in the physical system that we call a biological organism. 
Yeah, I feel as an engineer, I feel a bit left out. But let's say that we guys, the, we make things work. <laughs> like you model it, and we make it work. One quick thought on, on that same topic, just before we move on to the next. I used to have a physics professor that basically always said, and of course he was biased, that everything is physics. Everything comes down <laughs> to physics, even the bio, the chemistry, whatever, it comes down to physics because it's electrons and atoms and whatnot interacting in some ways. So of it, all the forces and all the various aspects of it comes back to physics. So that's why I think physicists tend to go in this direction. It makes sense. And let's dive into embodiment since mm -hmm. we got there. She spoke a lot about embodiment and I think it's very important because we don't speak about embodiment enough, in my opinion, in this community. I'd like to know your opinion, Ralph, on this. I'd mm -hmm. like to know if things changed and if now we are at a point where we can't avoid it anymore. We need embodiment and closed loop systems and we need to get there. What do you think? Yeah, so I don't think it's new, firstly, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you look at the work of Noah Cowan when he worked on the antennas of roaches and understanding how the antennas interact with the real world and then how that affected the control that he was implementing in his robots, right? And then ultimately to have the robot essentially run the same way that a roach would do, which is run along the edge of a wall to find the little holes into which it disappears. So that kind of embodiment that includes the mechanical sensing the sensory motor interface, the process of understanding what the antennas are telling it, and then ultimately to affect how the robot itself navigates, and then to have that closed loop. And then I think he included learning as well in his models, and that was a prime example of that whole closed loop system and using the robot as a means to study the antennas. What he was looking at is how the bending of the antennas convey information, which is not too different than what Mitra is talking about in terms of the bending of the whiskers. But what is really cool, I think, about Mitra's work as well is where the whiskers interface with the face itself, at the root of the whiskers themselves, there's all kinds of sensors there. Then she talks about the skin stretching there's all kinds of sensors in that as well. And then there are multiple whiskers as well, right? So interacting with that cone that she refers to, I think she was a cone, but you're not getting only data from a single antenna, right? You're getting a data from multiple antennas. You're creating an array representation of what's going on. And then you're playing that array through the reaction of the robot. I think, you know, it's a real beautiful example of physics and processing and neuroscience and all of it coming back to ultimately generating movement and navigating around objects. I think it's really cool. Since you touched this point, I'd like to know other applications related to the mapping, right? You were talking about the fact that she talks about the whiskers and these whiskers are mapped uh, into the cortex and then the retinotopic mapping that we have too, right? So I'd like to know from you if you have other examples of applications that maps like this. Totally, right? She speaks about the overrepresentation of certain sensory input in cortex. So she referred to vision and she said, hey, look, humans and cats have this big uh, visual cortex, right? Think about also tactile, right? There's the homunculus, right? Which is basically the representation of our whole body in terms of touch, which is consistent with the topological arrangement on our hands, where fingers and tongues and places that are of high sensitivity have overrepresentation as well. So that's another example of it coming in, into reality. 
Another one is for eye movements, right? You look at the superior colliculus, the location of where the eyes move as a function of where an object in the visual scene appears, that's all mapped in the superior colliculus or optic tectum in, in lower animals. And you can see the firing of these cells that drives the eye to a certain location and see what happens. And, and you see it as well in other animals, right? You see it in zebrafish, you see it in weakly electric fish and so on. So yeah, there is a lot of examples of this topo topographical mapping of whatever your sensory space is into neural space, and then processing is done on that. Oh, which maps very nicely to the type of organization that we see in our neuromorphic system. Because our neuromorphic systems are usually arrays of neurons and synapses and so on that can be constructed into maps very easily, especially in a 2D sense. In a 3D sense, eh, not so much, but 2D for sure. So that's another beauty of that linkage between the biological system that she's studying and some of the neuromorphic aspect that we see. One thing that I don't think came out in the interview, and maybe this was my fault because I asked the wrong questions, was exactly how someone might go and use Mitra's rat whisker simulation or her robot to test circuit hypotheses. Ralph, maybe you could talk us through the kind of experimental design that you might have to achieve something with a simulator like that. Okay, so imagine you have a robot that is the representation of the mouse that has whiskers, again, representation of the mouse, and you are trying to make it run forward when there's an obstacle, and then feel that obstacle, and then drive around that obstacle in order to avoid it. There are various circuits that one could implement to do that, right? How do you decode the sensory signal coming from the whiskers? I can try one network and press go, and the robot goes, and maybe it gets to the obstacle and it bounces into it. You take it back, you change the topology, or you learn from that experience, and you go back again, and you run it again. So that gives you a means to reprogram in real time the network that you are using for that navigation around the obstacle and to have it happen in the real time by just continuously trying it out and seeing what the robot does. Now, she also mentions that now we have these fast camera systems that can watch what the mouse does in real navigation. We can also use those things to watch what the robot does. And then you can use those two results to measure the accuracy or the efficacy of the algorithm that's being implemented in the hardware, in the model of the neurons, in the model of the network. Yeah. Now, one of the things that always struck me about physical systems rather than bit-based systems is that time represents itself. The reason I bring that up is that it seems to me that behavior is about the timing of moving from doing one thing to doing the other or looking one way and looking another. It could be that it's roughly the right configuration, but because the time constants of the circuits are wrong, it doesn't look like the same behavior. So it just seems to me that the experimental design is actually quite tricky when you're doing something like this. So I would say the following in this case, right? I would say that, of course, the complexity of the network matters, making sure that it has all the degrees of freedom to capture as many of the realities of the real world as possible. 
That's the first step. And that's where we go back to our last podcast, which talked about the models of the neurons and the models of the synapses. All of that complexity has to be somewhat real, right? We also know that we can make time constants appropriate for real-world activity. We don't have to run the circuits at nanoseconds. Yes, it's not trivial, but we can do it, and we can have time constants that is milliseconds or even seconds on chip, or even in an FPGA. We just have to do the appropriate things with, with the clocks and so on if you're doing it digitally, or with capacitors and resistors and so on, and current sources if you're doing it analog. But it's doable. So I, I don't see that as being necessarily a rate-limiting step, so to speak. The models that exist in our computational embodiment, so the models of the neurons, the models of the nervous system, have to be rich enough to be able to capture the dynamics that has happening in the real world. If you then use that kind of time constant, don't we lose the inherent potential that we have with the latency? We should be good in terms of the fact that we are fast. Mm. So latency and time constants are two different things. So you mm. could have something that has the right time constant, the right dynamics, and low latency because the results appear as they should appear, that the appropriate time, right? I guess I want to decouple those two aspects. You want low latency, but you want the right dynamics, right? So even if you slow it, the result has to be relevant when it's relevant, <laughs> when it's supposed to be relevant. I guess that's the bottom line. On the other hand, if I understand your question correctly, Julia, you're basically saying, look, we have this fabric that is nanoseconds fast, and now I'm going to run it at milliseconds. So what happens to that six orders of magnitude in between? Am I wasting it? And I think that depends on the implementation method, right? So if you are implementing all this in analog, then you need to have the full flow of electrons onto capacitors and so on and so forth to happen in the actual real time. On the other hand, if you're doing it in digital, then you can run pieces of the computation, store it, go do something else, come back, run the other piece of the computation, store it, go do something else, and so on. So you can do interleaving, and you can do multi-thread computation in that way, right? So there are ways that you can take advantage of both types of computation. I have one more thought that I think yeah. is worth exploring. So she talks about the role of uh, engineering in neuroscience and then neuroscience in engineering, in the sense of speaking about what is neuromorphic engineering, in a sense, and, and how that loop is closed. And she talks about how initially when she started studying this area, she talks about she was a physicist trying to learn neuroscience through a physics lens, and now she's trying to learn physics through a neuroscience lens or something to that effect, right? Or take, I think what she said is she took the biology that she learned and tried mm -hmm. to then apply it to engineering and to robotics. That's what she was doing at JPL. And now she says she's flipped it around. So the, the reason I wanted to, to bring this up is because there are many places where engineering has actually led to developments in neuroscience. And I wanted to make sure that we don't lose those. So understanding the details and the mechanics and the physiology of certain structure in the brain is one way that we can apply principles from engineering in order to tease out the different variables, right? And there are folks who do systems identification. There are folks who do like really deep mathematical representation of what's going on in order to understand that, right? But there is another side, which is more related to the neuromorphic side, which is the types of circuits that we implement in neuromorphic engineering has actually moved neuroscience forward a long way. And here is what I mean. Think about Reed Harrison's neural recording device. 
we can go and buy a chip that we can put on our desk and actually record directly from neurons. That is a big step forward that came out of the whole analog subthreshold world of, of computation that came out of neuromorphic engineering. I just want to make sure that's clear to the listener. So right. essentially, these are neural recording chips that you can place in the brain right. and you can amplify so that you're recording from, as I recall, a, a relatively smaller number of neurons than was previously possible. So you're not having to record from such a large ensemble as had been the case previously. Is that right? Yeah, you can record from single neurons, in fact, because you're going down into the microvolts and amplifying the signal into the volts so you can see it, you can digitize it. So his Etan chip essentially made neurophysiology available to the general population, so to speak. If I want to do an experiment on a rat, I don't need to go buy a big rack of instruments with expensive pieces anymore. I can spend a few hundred bucks on his chip with some additional support electronics, and I can do neurophysiology. That really is, is something that has moved from neuromorphic engineering, because that's where Reed was, right, to neuroscience and revolutionized in some ways. All these brain-machine interfaces that we are seeing today came from that line. Now, not everybody uses Reed's chips. I get that. But the idea of just being able to apply this kind of circuits that we commonly see in neuromorphic engineering and seeing it being used in neuroscience is, I think, a very powerful example of why neuromorphic engineering is important. So I think what you've just highlighted is the elegant connection between neuromorphic engineering, biology, robotics, and biomedical engineering, which is, I know, something that we haven't had much of a chance to talk about yet in this series, but which we will get to for sure later on, and which I know has been one of your preoccupations in recent years, Ralph. And that's one of the things that if you have inherently biological approach to electronics, then you're going to make things that are inherently more biologically compatible than the conventional approach would take you to. That's maybe something we're going to be touching on later. Agreed. Any last issues you'd like to mention, Ralph? Yeah, so one of the areas in which she studies as well is looking at cerebellum circuitry, and in fact, for sensory motor computation and, and refinement. And that is another beautiful example of where neuromorphic engineering can play a role as well. If you look at the networks that we implement, if you look at the Andre Van Schaik Deep South networks or Loihi and so on, there's a certain regularity in the neurons and the synapses that, that they implement. If you look at cerebellum circuitry, that regularity is remarkable. The Purkinje cells, the climbing cells, the fibers running horizontally is just remarkably similar. So all those complex sensory motor circuits that she talks about in her work can be implemented very nicely in the type of hardware that folks in this community implement. Okay, let's just stop it here. Thanks, Sasani, for another interesting interview and Ralph for your insightful comments as usual. In our next episode, Sunny will be talking to Professor Giacomo Indiveri of the Institute of Neuroinformatics at the University of Zurich in Switzerland about how neuromorphic engineering and his own chip designs are evolving. We hope you join us then. 
That brings another episode of EE Times Current to a close. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our guest, Professor Mitra Hartman from Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. EE Times Current is available through all the major podcast platforms, but if you reach us at our website, eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript of this episode. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Stephanie Munoz. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.